Okay, this is a good one. I did a podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour with Paul Gilmartin. And it was kind of a, a, a an amazing podcast for me because I talked about my mom. His podcast, for those of you who don't know, uh, talks to people who have suffered in their life from addiction or abuse or uh, mental illness in any way shape or form his podcast has been around for quite some time and he has a big facebook following and a, a nice forum of people who listen and it's really inspiring i think how much he's helped people and he was kind enough to come and be on my podcast so we continued this talk of healing and how you can kind of um, grow through and grow out of trauma and heal through stuff and how it's much more fulfilling to to go through that pain than it is to just sit with it for your whole life so hopefully you guys gain some wisdom from it um i sure did he's such a lovely human being um really gentle person um and i really enjoyed the talk so i hope you enjoy it as well are loving your your episode they are oh my god yeah Pe- people are just like this is one of the best episodes ever really yes it's not su- it does not surprise me at all be- because your story is so cinematic it could be a, <laughs> it could be a movie i don't know about that and it's it's not like this tragedy because you have done so much work and you've changed so much and so there's a you know a a positive outcome to it and it's a great example of uh you know if you if you put the work in and you really seek getting better you know right it can it it can happen it is about hard work yeah it's about work it's not about hoping that it will change or some magic formula i was thinking about this yesterday i was doing a podcast with two young ladies yesterday that are negative talk to themselves a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, You're, that just closes all your receptors down, right? When it you does. start going, no, 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 no. Then the universe hears, no, 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 no. And then they go, oh, well, then she doesn't want that, no. Right. But it takes a lot of work, a lot of practice to kind of reverse that innate part of who you are sometimes or what you have been forced to become yes to to survive to survive yeah yeah because to be uh you know hopeful and vulnerable if the environment you were raised in that wasn't safe to do that that little part of you you know that little kid retreats but that it never dies that part in you it's like an ember it may (laughs) you know 
just slowly kind of diminish, but I believe it never, ever goes out. And to me, pardon the analogy, but human connection is like oxygen for for that that little ember. I and, agree. Uh, I was just talking with somebody last night, and we were talking about self-advocacy, sticking up for yourself, setting boundaries and stuff like that. And what I discovered, because I really struggled with intimacy, yeah, uh, both the platonic and romantic. And what I discovered in my support groups, they stressed self-care, self-advocacy. And what I discovered was, is I began setting boundaries with people, for instance, cutting toxic people out of my life mm -hmm. or having difficult conversations with people saying, you know, uh, we've been talking for 45 minutes and you talked for 44 minutes and I feel like an audience member and I care about you but if we are to continue having a relationship I have to be honest with you totally which was a great boundary to set I felt empowered by it and sure. as I began doing these things I began to feel more empowered mm -hmm. and the stronger I felt the easier it was to become vulnerable yeah and when I became vulnerable then it's like my heart opened up and I began to experience platonic intimacy with people in my support groups. And now I'm in a relationship and I'm experiencing romantic intimacy. And it's, I, I didn't think that I was capable of it. Not that I didn't ever have intimacy in my marriage with my ex, but it's, uh, I don't know, we kind of grew apart. Right. And... I also did some damage uh, oh. to the relationship. So what do you I don't mean you did some damage? Like you were were you keeping her at arm's length because you weren't safe to be vulnerable? And then that that as well as um, uh, I had I had been unfaithful early in the relationship. Okay, yeah, that's I hard. had harmed uh, the trust. Yeah, in it, and um, yeah, we. We just kind of hit a hit a a fork in the road, and right. we're friends today. And you know, we still have love for each other. I mean, sure. we're in each other's wills, right? Know? Right. <laughs> you know, so. <clears throat> but I feel like I have to own that that part of me because I don't want to portray myself as oh, I was just the victim of of all these things right. i have to own the 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 sick behavior right that i that i had that ownership i think is really key for people for, or was for me does i i don't know if i said this on your podcast or not but i did say this recently on mine i remember coming to a certain age and going okay everything that happens from now on is my fault mm -hmm. so if i sleep with the wrong guy if mm -hmm. i lie to someone's face if i um, if I steal something, uh, that's a choice I am making eyes wide open as an adult. Now, if I did those things before today, I can blame mama all I want, but starting today, I own myself good, bad, and ugly. And I remember having that conscious thought and then thinking, if that's your path, then you can't blame her anymore. Mm -mm. And it doesn't excuse what happened or how I was treated or not treated or it doesn't excuse anything in the past. It's just an ownership of your responsibility of your actions starting today. And even I was not perfect. I made mistakes and went, ooh, 
I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But then you can kind of fix it a little better because I think for me, it separated it from trauma. Mm -hmm. And it just made it that I'm just making a mistake. And if I'm like you, who or a person who had no trauma and they make the same mistake, then why is mine so bad? Mine isn't mine the same as that person? Aren't we all human? It kind of gave me permission to to figure things out in a different way instead of being tethered to that well the reason i act like this is because my mom was a jerk and the reason i'm not in love is because my mom was a jerk super easy to do that really lazy to do that yeah it's like if you're if you were feeling physically bad and then you found out that you had you know cancer and the cause of it was that you were exposed to asbestos yes it's great to know the cause yeah asbestos but now that you know you have cancer it's your responsibility to get chemo yes radiation see the doctor take care of yourself yes absolutely etc but i find a lot of people uh, have a hard time doing that moving out of the past living in the present not even living in the future but living right now and being okay with who you are right this minute that's i think one of the hardest things in the world it is especially if you still allow toxic people in your life right because boy doesn't that get your brain just all wrapped it does it triggers all of that oh totally stuff and it feels so real and it feels in some ways comfortable because it's familiar absolutely right where you go i know what this is yeah i may not know what a healthy relationship is and that might be scary it's like the one in the hand two in the bush theory where i may have really good friends out there but i don't really know what that's going to feel like Mm -hmm. i don't really know how to make that happen i know a lot of people email me and go how did you make so many great friends because i have really great friends all of my people on my podcast are my friends like Mm -hmm. legit friends i see them outside of here we do stuff together all the time and I think, boy, it was a lifetime in the making. I had zero girlfriends when I was 30. Zero, really, to speak of. Mm-hmm. That I have like I have today. I have, well, that's not entirely true. I shouldn't say that. I had a handful. But I wasn't, like you said, super intimate with them like mm-hmm. I am today in a platonic way. Right. And it's, I, 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 we're in such an immediate society, too, where I think people think, I want it now. I want it now. And don't understand. It's kind of like a flower. It kind of opens a little bit every day. It really does. And then all of a sudden you have this beautiful bloom. And Yeah. And I think to, to really have a deep relationship with somebody, whether it's a friendship or a partner, you have to be willing to have difficult conversations. That's part of being an adult. And it's, it's um, so easy to just dispose of friends and... Um, and avoid but, and avoid but you don't grow if you don't have those difficult conversations and you lose out on growing that uh tool of learning diplomacy of how to word things mm-hmm. to have a difficult conversation you know yeah. to tell those friends that i felt like an audience member in our friendship you know i thought well what would it feel like if this information was coming to me, mm-hmm. how would it be the most digestible? And I thought, well, I would want that person to remind me that they care about me or that they love me. And I would prefer that they don't attack my character, rather just let me know what it is that's happening and how they feel about it. Exactly. 
And you know, it, um, I think for me, when I have difficult conversations with Bert, I've talked about this in the past too. When we first got together, I had a really hard time arguing because I wasn't allowed to argue with my parents. I mean, it wasn't really wasn't allowed to argue with my mother and I didn't have any siblings. So I didn't have any way of learning how to argue in a healthy way because arguing is healthy. Uh, not defamation of character, not name calling, but really saying, hey, I'm mad at you. Right. And this is why. And even in that, saying the wrong thing sometimes, you learn from that as a child, especially. I didn't really have that experience. So when Bert and I first got really serious, I would just full blown shut down entirely, like you're talking about, because I had no practice at all in advocating for myself or in, in, in just a conflict being okay. You know, my mom had an argument. She got divorced. She's on her sixth divorce now. So if they had an argument, it was just, I'm done. I'm out. You know, that narcissism as a disorder, they can't handle that. If you don't agree with me, I'm leaving. It's is a threat to my survival for her. So, and the children of narcissists, black and white thinking 100%. Is, is like one of the things that's left in their past. It is. And we tend to view the, there's an amazing article by a guy named uh, Dr. Alan Rappaport, and it's called Co-Narcissism. And it's about the dynamics of being raised by a narcissist and the effects it has on that child. And um, the some of the things are... Um, black and white thinking, you tend to believe that the world views you the way that sick parent uh, viewed you. Um, there's often um, addiction in there. Um, How interesting. I have to read Depression, this anxiety. Um, uh, isolating. Uh, there's a bunch of other ones. I can't, I can't remember exactly what they are, but... Uh, People should definitely check that out. Every yeah, person totally. that I've recommended uh, to read it was like, this is my life. Yeah, I'll have to find that. I'll put a link to that on my website. Yeah. Um, I'll like to read that myself. I definitely, definitely had black and white thinking. Yeah. In, and I definitely felt everybody saw me the way my mom did, for sure. And I think I had some addiction stuff. Maybe not addiction, but abuse. Uh, right. alcohol abuse when I was really young. I, I, I stopped and went to therapy and then I didn't need that Band-Aid anymore. It was really a Band-Aid uh, for me because now I drink maybe two glasses of wine a month and I'm like, I'm fine, I don't need to get drunk. Uh, I don't need to medicate. For yeah. me, it was really medication. I'm sure it is for a lot of other addicts, yeah. but I don't have that kind of addictive like chemical makeup right. in my that's not my makeup yeah. it's um, like you're gonna you're gonna treat your wounds with something with Either something isolation right? or shopping or or sex or sex or yep. whatever so why not treat it with something that doesn't have shitty side effects right some people treat it with toxic relationships yeah with just sick cyclically going in and out of friendships that are bad for them i but, think but because it's intense mm-hmm. it feels alive and it feels like love yeah it feels like love yeah one uh, one of my support groups there's a really profound uh sentence in the literature that says we must we mistook um intensity for intimacy interesting yes and i think so many people will relate to that but until until you grow and discover what real intimacy feels like you don't realize that what you were experiencing was 
intensity. Intensity, and, right. And then it makes sense why, oh, this is why my relationships always last three to six months and why suddenly they turn and run or I'm no longer attracted to them and I'm in fact repulsed by them and I can't stand them touching me or you know what whatever whatever it is that was my cycle when I was in my 20s yeah three to six months tops yeah. and it was really intense and then I was really out bye-bye yeah. I always left. I never. They never left me. I always left. And what was the turning point in the relationship? Was it them saying "I love you," or once you felt like the relationship was, like there was, uh, like it was set, then you would freak out? Probably. I don't. I never freaked out. I got bored. Yeah. I'd go. Ah, I'm done. You're you're boring. This is boring. Uh, done. So and, was, and was it the conversation was boring? The sex was boring? All of the above? Good question. I think it was probably all of the above. And I don't know what I was thinking about the guys I dated. They were so different. Um, but I, it was me, definitely. Yeah. I was broken big time. And I know some of these guys were just the sweetest, mm-hmm. still to this day, the sweetest, loveliest, well-intentioned want to get married you know sweetest guys and i just was uh i was just a little bit of a monster i think at that time i was trying to medicate yeah by getting these cyclical three to six months you know i think i liked the chase yes the excitement yes and the validation of i I got it yep i got it yep and once i felt like i i guess once i felt like i really got Mm -hmm. we're here i got bored yeah I don't remember feeling repulsed or um, just bored. And then you weren't doing it right. I know, right? I was totally screwed it up. Yes. No, I just was like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. I'm just going to move on. And then yes. the poor person is like, what? I thought we were yeah. I thought we were going to the moon. I'm like, no, 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 detour. Hard yeah. left to the sun. Sorry. And it's, it's really a form of objectification because even though you're not doing it consciously, that person is fulfilling a need in in us for validation mm-hmm. and once we've gotten that from them they're just kind of a husk that we've drawn what we wanted from them right. and we don't consciously know right that no. that's what had attracted us to them right but on their end what they feel is that you know they were used used yeah just use really too bad i'm glad i figured my stuff out and stopped doing that i actually stopped dating entirely for like seven years i stopped drinking and stopped dating almost at exactly the same that'll bring your shit to the surface right and i started therapy all at the same time i was like i think this may be really destructive behavior and i think i may need to get some help i don't think there's anybody in my family that can help me so i think i may need to actually get some professional help so that's what i did i went to therapy there are so few people like you uh, that, that, <laughs> seriously they've been through what you've been through and i'm not just blowing smoke um to have given up those two things and focused on therapy um i mean that's 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 pretty incredible well thanks i i think how uncomfortable I, was that compliment it was uncomfortable they're always uncomfortable i do have a hard time with compliments i I know that i always feel this is very interesting 
my mom would say, who do you think you are? That's what happens when I get a compliment, is I hear her going, who do you think you are? And I have to struggle and fight and go, I don't know. I don't think I'm anybody. I just really like my podcast. (laughs) And I like talking to people. And I know in quietly to myself, I do know how much I've accomplished. I do know that my life was a complete overhaul. I do know how hard I worked to get from there to here. It was really hard. But I do have a hard time uh, get, being complimented about it. Be- yes. Because I go, I, there's part of me that wants to normalize it and go, but anybody can do that. Right. But I don't know that anybody could have done what I did. For, I say this all the time. If I had had a sibling, I think they would have been dead. I think yeah. they would have been an addict to the point that they wouldn't have made it to this point. So I, I do understand that. But it is hard for me to take. I'm sweating. It's really hard for me to take off of it because I go, I mean, what, what was I supposed to do? Take that path? I chose when I said I need to stop. This behavior is really destructive. I decided what is my end goal? And it was to be happy. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't even to have money or fame or fortune or any of these things people dream about. Mine was just to be happy. So what do I need to do to be happy? And that was my focus with therapy, was how do I get happy? Because I'm really unhappy. And I don't really want to be unhappy for the next 70 years. I was 23 when I started therapy. I was like, that's just not doable. I I don't want to be unhappy that, that but that moment of clarity that that you had where you could step outside yourself in that moment you know i sometimes wonder if that's not the universe saying i think this person i'm going to pick this person to be one of the people that can be a, a channel for healing mm. for other people mm. uh Sometimes I wonder if if it's um, divine, divine, yeah. you know, not like I'm anything special, but that's just, you know, the universe chooses you. You know, you're going to be a great race car driver. Right, right. You're going to be this. You're going to be an amazing baker, right. et cetera. And sometimes I just feel like um, something larger than me, I'm not a religious person, but just stepped in and said, this is this is going to be your your thing your work your your work yeah and um because the the things that you and i have been through have killed many uh, yeah yeah people for sure um i i often wonder why why me right um well you've helped so many people with your podcast mm-hmm. i mean you've so many people for i, I did i do an intro before you mm-hmm. uh so i would talk more about who you are before but Paul has a podcast called The Mental Illness Happy Hour that's helped so many people because you're, you talk with your guests about depression, anxiety, abuse, um, sexual abuse, so many different topics that are really raw. And it's amazing when people hear that they're not alone. I think that is so healing to go, oh, I'm just not alone. And how many people have listened to your podcast and how many people have grown from listening to you? I think you're right. I think you were tapped on the shoulder like this is your calling. I I feel like that because I will often look at people 
in my support groups who worked harder than I do mm-hmm. at things and all of a sudden something takes them out or maybe they overdose or oh. or something and um and I and I just wonder what why me and and I don't spend too much time thinking about it because why is not the work why might be a hobby right 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 you're but, right <laughs> you know at the end of the day why doesn't matter why doesn't really no, matter it doesn't matter That's why what you do with the, did the my cards? mother have this uh mental illness that caused her to treat me why well i know why but why did that guy do that to her to make her have this well i don't know why that i mean you spend all day on why but here's a why <laughs> why did you start your podcast was there a reason Something. I wanted people to know that they're not alone. I'd gone off my meds, uh, despite my psychiatrist urging me not to, and uh, wanted to kill myself and didn't realize that it was the depression and came pretty, not to the point where I was planning suicide, but where I was really thinking about suicide a lot and oh. just didn't want to be alive. Oh. And then I suddenly realized, oh my God. Because I, I felt great for like four months mm-hmm. after I was off the med. So I thought, I'm free and clear. I'm going to be okay. And when I realized it was a depression coming back, I thought, fuck. I believe that mental illness is a real thing. I've been in therapy for a decade. I see a psychiatrist. I go to support groups. And I got fucking fooled by it. Right. Somebody needs to talk about this in a way that isn't academic or kind of you know, crystals and new agey. Yeah. And it's a way that's kind of accessible and raw and where you can laugh at dark shit one moment and then the next minute you're crying uh, about something. And so I thought that that might be, I just felt like it was something that was needed. I think you're right. I think it is something that was needed. Very much so. It's, you know, uh, I feel like especially in the more rural parts of our country, mental illness is really looked down on. It really is. I mean, it is really Especially in the closeted. religious community. Oh, yeah. Terribly. Yeah. And and that's really a shame because a lot of mental illness is, well, all of it's treatable, I think, for, yeah. for the most part. But the shame is what keeps it present. You know what I mean? Like, if you're ashamed because you are de- uh, have chemical depression then that keeps you in this cycle of depression so true you know you're trapped you are trapped the shame is horrible (laughs) yeah it is a prison of our own making and i never realized that i sound so cliche (laughs) that i had the key to my own prison and that that was shame self-loathing yep isolating yep all these things that i could change but i had to be facing death to want to change the those things and but this was before i started the podcast this is before right. i got sober right i was thinking about suicide 50 times a day oh my and, gosh you know my face was on bill billboards yeah. and you know i had a great job on tv and all of all of the things that I thought, if I'll get these things, they'll make me happy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have human connection because all I cared about was myself and my own pleasure. Interesting. So I had no spiritual life, not religious, but spiritual life. I didn't care about any greater good. If it was convenient, I could be the nice guy. 
but if it was inconvenient. And I heard somebody say in a meeting one time, uh, service begins where convenience ends. Interesting. Uh, I, I just That's true. Well, you know what? I think what it is, too, is a lack of connection to self. Mm-hmm. Like you think you selfish is different that being someone who's self-focused is different than being self-connected, yes. right? They're very different things. Just like the difference between, you know, being isolated versus having alone time. Totally different things. That's right. And it's, you said something just a second ago I thought was really important. Now I forgot what it was. Um, but that, that, that connection to yourself because really something that I worked on a lot too was the one person who will never leave me is me. So I'd better be right with me. Right. I better take care of me. I better stand up for me. I better make me happy. I can't expect my happiness to come from something other than me. That doesn't mean that I don't get happiness from my children or I don't get happiness from my husband. That's not what I mean. I mean, my source energy has to be happy. from its source and then i can take in the happy from other sources you are the only one that can recharge your battery that's it you're it and if you don't have your battery then you don't have enough love to give to your family no your children or to be at the very least present no with them you you can't if you can't be present with yourself you can't be present with other people and it's hard i think it seems so kind of out there thinking right i guess but really if you think about it it's about opening every yucky closet in your psyche and saying i'll take that i got it let's talk about it you know yes let's talk let's about talk it about it. let's cry about it yes let's punch a fucking wall about it yes let's get it out in the open no secrets yes for yourself yes you don't have to tell other people your secrets but we keep secrets from ourselves you know yes. We, we say, oh, you know, my mom and I want, got in a fight when I was like 20-something, and I pushed her. I pushed her down. Mm-hmm. I got, and I was really ashamed of that behavior. And I didn't want to talk about that behavior because it makes me look bad that I couldn't control myself in my early 20s. I pushed my mother down. It's pretty bad. So I could either hide that from my therapist and myself, or I could say, I should talk about that. Why did I let myself get to the place where I became physical with someone Mm -hmm. in an argument? That's not acceptable for me. Obviously, it's not acceptable for her. That's not acceptable for anybody. But for my own connection to myself, for my own self-love, that's not acceptable for me. Right. So I have to change that for me, which sounds selfish, I guess. But if I change that for me, it will then never affect another person because it's not acceptable for me. Right. And, right? and, and I believe in that moment where you had pushed that person or whatever that, you know, for instance, me, the, the being unfaithful within that. It contains so much information about what your fears are, what your coping mechanisms are. That can be the very information that allows your therapist or your fellow support group members to help you so much more deeply. Mm. But if we never get that self-honesty that you're talking uh, about, we can, we just... You can't have the rest. You can't have the rest. You can't, you can't have, have the, the rest. rest. Mm-hmm. And you have to walk through the possibility 
of looking bad in front of other people's eyes. But to me, that's a form of vulnerability. Oh, it absolutely is a form of vulnerability because you are opening yourself up for rejection. For rejection. And judgment. Yes. And and um, isolation, if you look at it a certain way. Say, I can't hang out with you. For a person to say to you, I'm not hanging out with you because I don't like that, what you right. just did. But I guess I grew into a part, a place where I went then we're not supposed to be together. Mm-hmm. And I'm cool with that. This is who I am. If you can't hang out with me because Couldn't of all my more. spiders and all my skeletons, then we're just not meant to hang out. And I'm cool with that. Right, because there's know? a difference between that person saying it because you refuse to own that part of yourself and you don't want to work on that part of yourself. Right. And you say that it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's that's different. But for you opening up and, and saying, I'm ashamed of this part of myself and it's really hard for me to talk about. To me, that is the ultimate in vulnerability and you are also, the the plus side is you are opening up the possibility for somebody to love you unconditionally, right. which is the payoff that is the of payoff. vulnerability yes, and walking through all of that, yes. that icky stuff. Because really, how can someone love you unconditionally if they haven't seen all your spiders and skeletons? They can't. There's condition. You've set a condition. My condition is you can't see this section over here. Bert and I had a first date that would never end. He would not let me leave our first date. I mean, it went on forever. And at the end of the date, he was like, can I see you again? I said, yes, but let me tell you something. I am a heavy girl. I got a lot of luggage. (laughs) I have a lot of luggage. So if we're going to date, I need you to know I come with luggage. This is not, I'm not like Pollyanna. Uh, and he goes, okay, I'm interested in seeing what that luggage looks like. I was like, oh, okay. I've never dated anybody like you before. And then I got to a certain point in our relationship where I was like, this is too scary. I can't show you any more luggage. No more luggage. Because he was like, I got your luggage. I got your luggage. He kept saying, I got it. I got it. I got it. And at a certain point, I was like, there's no freaking way you really have this. I don't trust this. This has never happened before. I don't, I don't, something is definitely fishy here. I'm definitely withdrawing my luggage. And he, he sat down with me one day and he goes, I am telling you, I have it. I want all of it. I'll take every bit of it. And I just kind of fell apart a little bit. I fell apart actually a lot. I had an anxiety attack about it. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. This is just way too scary to have somebody really see all my luggage and say say yes. I said that to my girlfriend. Gotcha. I was like, I... What did you do in front of him when he said that? Of bawling. I was bawling my head off. I didn't know what my thoughts and feelings were. I was just terrified. Did you feel close to him in that moment? I did feel close to him. And I felt... My head believed him. My experiential body, my... Your central nervous system yes, was, was like, like, oh, yeah. Warning, danger. He's definitely going to pull this out from you. I mean, uh, my mom would go, I love you so much. You're the best. You're dead to me. I'm not speaking to you for a year and a half. I love you so much. You're the best. You're dead to me again. Yeah. So I was like, there's definitely red flag here. This, there's no way this is real. And then I talked to my girlfriend about how I was feeling and she went oh honey you're done just stick a fork in you you're totally done he is exactly what he's telling you he is 
Yes, he's a pain in the ass. Yes, he's a nine-year-old in a 30-something-year-old's body. Yes, all these things. But he he sees all that shit. He's telling you the truth. So you just need to calm down. Just stop. Let's go see Finding Nemo. And you'll feel much better. And that's what we did. And I came out of the movie. I was like, oh, I do feel much better. Okay. Okay, now I think I can move forward. Okay, I can wow. do it now. It was crazy because I did, I did really freak out when I figured out that I may have found someone who loves me warts and all. So aside from your therapist, it was maybe the first person uh, other than your girlfriends that you'd been vulnerable with. He, I was more vulnerable with him than I was with my girlfriends. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, because you said on the podcast you've always uh, there's been a kind of a wall between you and women because you didn't yeah. you didn't trust them. No trust of women, and this friend of mine, I'm, she's our maid of honor in our wedding, was really close to her, but not in the same way I was close to Bert. But I was close enough to her to be able to say, I think I'm coming dismantled. Yeah. <laughs> Can you help me? And and she. I think she probably knew all my skeletons and spiders too. So, so yeah, maybe I was more intimate with her than I thought. Yeah. And I was willing to um, see. So it's really scary too when you get into that new territory. Uh, I think as a 40-something-year-old, it's a lot easier. But, you know, your 20s, or at least for me, my 20s were about mistakes and learning. And like a, a cult on wobbly legs, you know, because my childhood was this one thing that I wasn't willing to repeat. So then I started my 20s as like a wobbly legged cult figuring out how this works. And when do I nurse on mom? And when do I leave, you know, eat the grass by myself? And how does this work? And then my 30s, I kind of started growing into my own a bit. And now in my 40s, some of the things that I was so difficult in my 20s are effortless. I think that's something too young young people mm -hmm. have a hard time um, trusting that eventually after practicing all these good thought patterns and behaviors that they become second nature. Yeah, because there's a delay, it, it, like a really long delay between doing the work and sitting in the pain mm -hmm. and feeling the benefits of right. it. It's there not it immediate. No, it's and, a slow burn. And it and it takes some amount of faith or desperation. Mm. That's desperation. why I think desperation can be such a gift. It's it's what we do when we're in that desperate place. And I don't know is that is is that a, a divine moment that we decide to face the monster and walk towards it right instead of you know descending into madness or addiction or suicide or whatever I, yeah. I, I don't know what what gives us that that moment of grace right is it something inherent in us is it is it i don't know but it doesn't matter what matters is turning around and looking into the jaws of the monster and right. saying you are not going to kill me, but running from you is going to. That is a great statement. You're not going to kill me, but running away will. Because it will. You'll die a slow, painful death and uh, wake up one day alone and lonely and with nothing, I think. I think that's mm -hmm. that was the path I was going down. Was definitely I was going to end up alone and lonely and with nothing. Yeah. And that desperation is a great 
word because I think I had become desperate yeah. by the time I was 23. I was desperate for happiness. Or, or here's, here's another one is you're going to die wealthy, but your life will be filled with shallow relationships and there will be an emptiness in you that you can't put your finger on. Mm. And I think that is so rife in, in our society. It's an epidemic. Yeah, and I, I don't know if, if I shared this story with you or not, but there was a, a woman who wanted to meet Mother Teresa because she wanted to work with her. And she camped outside of uh, the hotel where Mother Teresa was staying when she was visiting in the United States. And uh, one day she saw her coming out of the lobby and she ran up to her and said, I want to come work with you in Calcutta. I want to work with the poor. And Mother Teresa said to her, what do you do here in the United States? And she said, oh, I, I work for a theater uh, company. Uh, you know, it's, it's a stupid job. And Mother Teresa said, no, no, it's it's not. In in uh, India, we have a food famine. Stay here in America because here there's a spiritual famine. Oh, yeah. There is a spiritual famine. You know, I I talk about this a lot too, but this neighborhood, uh, this neighborhood we live in is, is a community. And it's not like any other neighborhood I've lived in outside of my small hometown in Bowden, Georgia, 1600 people in the whole town this little neighborhood that we somehow ended up in just by accident replicates that community that's and rare for la it's too. almost i i don't know that it exists anywhere else in la it's mm -hmm. the most bizarre thing you know when we trick-or-treat here we know everybody on the streets where kids run around free because they're going to run into somebody they know mm -hmm. i know all of my neighbors on this street and the street next one over and wow. and all of our neighbors know each other i mean you can't go anywhere without running into three or four people that you really know yeah. um not just recognize but actually hey how's your mom i heard your mom's sick hope she's mm -hmm. good you know like that kind of stuff I think that's missing from society because couldn't agree more. That um, interweaving of lives is so um, nourishing. Yeah, it's really nourishing, and and it's I believe it's genetic in us because what for the first nine thousand <laughs> right? years of man being alive, we lived in a village. We were tribal, right? A hundred percent. I think that. The internet has made us more isolated. But I think my grandparents stay. Everybody went to church on Wednesday night and on uh, Friday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. So that's four times a week. Every single week you saw your whole community. Hmm. And whether it didn't have to be a church. I know, right? I'm not <laughs> religious either. But my point is there was a, there was a propriety. Everybody went. Yeah. nobody stayed home whether you wanted to be there or not it's just what you did and then but how much community is involved in that just showing up in mass together four days a week whether you agree with what the preacher's saying or not right. there's just so much community in that yeah. what went as a society today what opportunities do we have even i was talking to the girls about dallas the tv show I was like, you'll never, ever experience anything like who shot Jr. Right. You won't. And that's really a shame because every person in this country was talking about that one thing. Mm -hmm. And that caused a community, right? right? 
everybody watched Dallas. Everybody wanted to know who shot Jr. And what in my kids' generation, they don't have anything like that. When uh, my ex and I first moved uh, to Los Angeles, we moved here a week before the Northridge earthquake. Oh, my God. Which was a horrifying uh, event. Yeah. And we were in this new apartment building and we didn't know anybody and it was so scary to be indoors that most of us spent our days in the courtyard and so we got to know each other oh. and we cooked for each other and we took care of each other and then we slowly went our own separate ways and drifted apart and i remember missing that sense of community mm -hmm. if you think about after 9 11 think about how nice people were yeah. to each other outside of new york yeah everywhere how, yeah i re remember playing hockey uh, like a, a day or two afterwards and i got upset about something and this teammate of mine just looked at me and he said does it really matter after what <laughs> just happened and i felt so ashamed right that i'd lost perspective on it and right. it i don't know i i certainly don't want a tragedy but how, how do we get that sense of community back and i i think doing the having the kind of conversations that you and i have is a way of of doing that I hope so, because I think that it's very healing to feel like you have a community. And especially, I'm not religious either uh, at all, but I do miss that part of going to church, yeah. not of listening to the sermon, but of the talking to everybody before yeah. and the talking to everybody after and the ceremony of putting on a dress and or at least uh, nice slacks and you know having some kind of uh, purpose in where you were going and what you were doing and uh it, i you know i don't know how you create that again this our little community elementary school does that we have a huge fundraiser every year where they build a big fair and it's all volunteer driven 8000 people go to that fair and that is one of the ways that i inserted myself in this community because I volunteered over and over again and I just I found it to be so healing and so um did you have fears going into uh volunteering no not really I so there wasn't like social anxiety no about, I don't have any of that yeah no I, I that's pretty amazing I mean no. given what you went through in your childhood <laughs> that you would just th throw yourself you know into that i that probably speaks to all the all the work that you did i definitely didn't have a problem the problem i did have problems in that job i always felt like i was screwing it up mm. i didn't feel like people wouldn't like me or i wouldn't make friends but i definitely felt like everything i did i was screwing up uh. that was the thing i had to fight against always did i send that email i don't think i sent that email let me go check and see if i said oh i shouldn't have put that word in that email like that kind of stuff or you know i did who do you think you are to know, know how to build this fair? <laughs> who do you think you are to show up with a tool belt and think you're something special? <laughs> I know you built a house from the ground up with your daddy, but who do you think you are? You think you really think you know what you're doing? That was what I was fighting. Wow. wow. Not about being accepted. You know, it's funny. All throughout that time with my mom, I always... Well, when we I was living in the gay community, I didn't have friends. There were no kids to have a friend to be friends with. But as soon as we moved out, 
I always had friends. I just didn't think, I thought they, they pitied me. I didn't understand they really liked me. <laughs> so common. Isn't that crazy? It's so common. I just thought they felt sorry for me. Yeah. And then it was reinforced. Like this one girl that lived across the street, Becky, I spent every day when I got off the bus and went to her house and stayed at her house until I had to go home. And they built a new house and were moving. And her dad called, they had four kids. Becky was my best friend, the oldest of four. And her dad called me and said, um, I need to talk to you by yourself. I was like, oh God, I'm definitely in trouble. And he said, so we built this new house and we built you a room. So we'd like to adopt you. And I just wanted to ask if that was okay before I talked to your parents. And I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed because I thought the jig is up. He knows how shitty it is across the street that he actually wants to wow i am so i was so embarrassed that's so funny because i would have thought that your reaction would have been breaking down with tears of joy that someone loves me no i well my dad always loved me and i i was moving in with my dad when i was 13 i was mm probably 11 when he asked me to move so i just was tick tock waiting to get to 13 uh. so i had somewhere to go if i hadn't had my dad i might have had that reaction but my first reaction was shame i was so ashamed and i thought and did you go live with them for the two years no i didn't yeah because i i felt ashamed and i felt that that i would be a burden i felt that i would be too much trouble um and constantly the mom and dad were like, if only our kids were as well behaved as you, Leanne, you know, because they were just a bunch of wild Indians running around crazy all the time. And I was so scared to act like that. And I was so aware of, of behaving well, because I didn't ever want to not be welcome at their house because their house was amazing. But I kind of created their house and my adulthood too, which I think is fascinating. My, my house and my life is very similar to those, couple years that i lived across the street from them it's i've kind of recreated the same thing have you ever talked to that oh yeah that, that guy since then and thanked him yes i um lost touch with them for a while and then facebook uh got me back in touch with becky and i called becky and we talked for probably four hours the first time bawling our brains out because she was like you're the best friend i ever had there was no one on this planet more loyal than you you were the best and i kept thinking i just thought she felt sorry for me i just thought she pitied me i didn't think that she really saw who i was Mm -hmm. and i wasn't sure i even really was that person i thought i was because that's definitely not what i was told i was i was told i was lots of bad things so i thought i was those bad things and then we three-way called her mother her father was very ill um so i didn't get to talk to her dad but i three-way called her mother and told her how important she was and tony was and their that conversation was and how much they meant to me and how important they were in me believing that i had value as a person did she cry the mom yes she did and i was bawling and becky was bawling I didn't ever get to tell Tony he passed away, but I am sure Margie walked in the bedroom and told Tony what was up. Um, He was just the sweetest guy. Um, But yeah, I remember thinking, I'm definitely going to be found out that I'm I'm a total, I'm a total 
like lie, fake, phony. When I'm not, I've never been a lie, fake, or phony. But I think I just didn't know. I don't know. When I went to the to the fair, to, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I'm definitely not going to do this. I'm definitely screwing this up somehow. Yeah. But One of the reasons why I love support groups, um, there's this moment at the end of my support group when and, and it's a uh, it's a men's uh, support group, mm-hmm. just that meeting. You know, the program itself is is not men only, but this particular meeting is is a men's group, and there's a moment at the end of every meeting where we lock arms and we uh, say a prayer. And even though I don't connect to the prayer because it's kind of old timey. I connect to the energy mm-hmm. of these guys with all of our arms locked. And I thought to myself one night, I always tell myself that I'm going through life alone, but I'm not. This is who I'm going through life with. This mm-hmm. is, I have the power of this group if I choose to let it into my life. And there's nothing that they can't help me with. Right. But I'm so afraid to ask for help. Are you? Yeah. There, I ordered um, two woodworking uh, machines that were really heavy. They're like 1,500 pounds each. Oh, my goodness. And they sat in my garage on the pallets because I couldn't get them off the pallets on my own. Right. They sat for three months because I didn't want to ask anybody to come help me get them off it and when one of the guys from that meeting found that out he goes i'm bringing my guys over tomorrow and we're getting those machines off the pallet oh my goodness did it in a half hour and i was so grateful but i'm so afraid of inconveniencing somebody Mm -hmm. or seeing a look of dread in their eyes or hearing it in their voice Mm mm-hmm uh, or maybe it's my ego. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's, it's like a central nervous system block. But I'm, as you can see, my arm is in a sling. Yeah. And I have been getting out of my comfort zone and asking people for help or at the very least accepting right. their help. Accepting uh, help is hard. I know I, the thing that I started doing for that, because I was the same way, I'd rather cut my arm off than ask for help, is I kept thinking... How would I feel if someone asked me? I feel great. Yeah. I love being asked to help. So why would I assume another person would feel differently? So I automatically think nobody wants that. That's an inconvenience. Well, I'm a big pain. Same things you think. Yeah. So I just started making myself think that way. I would, I'm never inconvenienced when a friend asks me for help. And if I am inconvenienced, I say I can't do that right now. Uh, why would I assume... If my friends are reciprocal and we're the same, then they should be similar to that too, to be happy when you're asked because it makes you feel important when you get asked. I understand that intellectually, (laughs) but for some reason, I think that they're not going to feel that way helping me. Isn't that interesting? It's another layer of intimacy, I think, to say, I... I need you. I, and I can do that with my girlfriend. Right. But I suppose that's because I know that she loves me mm-hmm. and that she wants to do that for me. Right. And I know that these guys have love for me. Mm-hmm. 
but in that moment, I just imagine everybody's schedule is so busy. Right. And yeah. So you would work. I do. What do you work? Would work? What do you do? Uh, do you I make? make furniture, cutting boards. Um, I, I like to make end tables and coffee tables. <clears throat> I'm a big fan of uh, mid-century modern stuff, okay. and so um, that's the kind of stuff I like to to do. And I'm also a big fan of Japanese stuff, especially Japanese lamps. And so I like to build uh, mid-century modern end tables with Japanese lamp embedded into wow. them, so they kind of uh, glow. I because I would always be sad when the Christmas lights would go down. <laughs> And so I thought, well, why can't I create furniture that has a glow that I like? And so that was just kind of, so I guess that's kind of my my thing. But I got away from it for years because my life just got small and I kind of got kind of depressed. Mm-hmm. And then after um, I my wife and I split, um, like, a year or so later I moved into my own place mm-hmm. and I had a garage and I was like god it'd be cool to get back into that so yeah. I'm in the process of that and just as I got the machines up and running I had to get elbow surgery so what happened so to your elbow what happened I had just a partial tear of a oh. of a tendon I think just from wear and tear of hockey and years of a, my age and mm-hmm. yeah guitar and all kinds of stuff so you, you a lot of times you don't realize how active you are until you can't be active yeah i bet that would be true um i guess so i've been on crutches before and i thought wow i haven't sat down this long probably since i was maybe one year old <laughs> it is true i guess you don't realize how active you are until you are forced yeah. to be inactive um, woodworking is what what were the big machines the 1500 pound machines one is a, they're both combination uh, machines one is a combination uh, sliding table saw shaper nice and the other one is a combination joiner planer nice uh, I had had separate machines but I wanted to have more floor space oh okay um, so I decided to get these and I'd always kind of lusted after these machines they're really really precise and for a woodworker um the more precise the the tool the just the easier the job is and the more also the more uh pleasurable they they are to use when you like one of the greatest feelings in woodworking is when you go to fit the two pieces of wood together and they match and it's just perfect and everything's square yeah you know and then the other thing is when you put the you know the oil on Mm -hmm. the on the wood when the when the project's done and all the grain comes popping out but that accuracy is such a satisfying thing and if you're if your tools aren't accurate you're just pushing a rock uphill it's true, isn't it? If, yeah. if with woodworking, especially with woodworking, I think you have to be so precise. You did. I, I, I built my chicken coop, which I'm really. You proud did. Of. I did. I built my chicken coop. I was really proud of that. It's pretty simple. No shaper, no joiner for me. But <coughs> wow, those are amazing. At one point, 
I was like, I could really use a couple of better tools. <laughs> I'm kind of well, like. Well, my shop is is open sh- if you ever care to uh, come by. Well, have thank you ever you. used uh, a joiner or planer? Or I've used a planer. Um, I don't think I've used a joiner. My grandfather built furniture, so my grandfather had a whole shop, band saws and big. Oh, and I bet he had those big belt old sanders, cast iron. They were beautiful things from probably the 30s and yes, 40s those machines beautiful. are still running machines they, from the 30s and 40s yes his were his um wood shop uh, burned down last year oh, he's no. been gone for a while but his two my dad and his brother still used all that equipment because they do uh, carpentry from right. time to time they aren't furniture builders but definitely did some carpentry and uh it was in an old, old building with old reclaimed, like old wood. And it was just like tender. You know, it just went up in flames. And every piece of that machinery was lost. It was and, really devastating. And the thing is, that reclaimed wood was probably worth more than the machinery. I'm sure. And the whole structure was all that. I mean, my grandfather built that structure, I don't even know when, probably in the 50s. Wow. So not... 1800 wood but still pretty old wood and yeah. it was all weathered and and it was old growth wood yes, which it was. you don't see too much anymore that stuff is almost completely harvested now at this point where the growth rings are really close together mm-hmm. that wood is so strong and so beautiful it is he he was he built furniture and he also had a sawmill so he actually cut all the trees down oh, and milled them himself. That is like the sexiest thing in the world <laughs> is watching a log get opened up for the first time and you are the first person to see the grain of yeah. that thing because each log is so unique. Each mm-hmm. wood has its own strengths and weaknesses and um, a couple of pieces of furniture that I, I built in uh, in my house were from the tree that was in the front yard wow really of our old house and you can hire people for like 150 or 200 dollars to come roll that log onto their horizontal bandsaw and they will saw it into slabs however thick you want i didn't know that yeah and then you can just store it and you just put what they call stickers between it which is just like little uh lengths of wood so that there's enough room for air to circulate between the slabs of wood mm-hmm. cover it with a tarp let it dry for two years and you got some kick-ass wood to make stuff and then you can look at your table and go that was the tree in my front yard that's amazing yeah the furniture that we recorded when you were on my podcast uh-huh. that all that was from that front tr- that You're tree kidding. in the front yard yeah that's amazing yeah it brings me a lot of a lot of uh pleasure to to do that i like doing that too uh, we did we built when I walk you back through the house, I'll show you the island in our kitchen. My dad and I built from the um, roof joists in our house when we were remodeling. They're wow. all Douglas fir. They all are from probably. I mean, the house was built in '39, so the wood. Oh, that was is, amazing oh, wood. It was amazing, and they have stamps on it. And someone wrote on the side of the wood with the marker. My dad was like, "We need to go have all this wood planed," and I was like, "No, no, 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 no! We are leaving it exactly." warped knots dings staple holes everything we're leaving it and we're just putting clear on it and we're it's going to be beautiful and people someone offered me four thousand dollars for this table and i was like nope there is no way i am not selling this table my dad and i made it 
it was so hard to do because we didn't have any sophisticated tools. We just kind and of... And when something's warped, trying to get two boards together that aren't 90 degrees. Uh, yes. It was, yes. It was a challenge. It was, it was fun, but it was yeah. a challenge. It was, it was a, like it took us two days to get all these pieces of wood assembled because they were so warped. So, what were they, like four-by-fours? or? No, they are two-by-fours, and then one was a beam. Right. Uh, it was like 10 feet long, and we ended up cutting right. it, but it was, I don't know, maybe 10 inches wide. Wow four inches thick wow and uh, yeah it was i'll show it to you when, when we go back in the house. i'm really proud it. of that piece because i built it with my dad mm -hmm. but because i wanted it to look exactly like it looks and my dad just couldn't he just was like i just I think this is gonna be the ugliest table i've ever built in my life <laughs> i was yes. like it's trust me trust me it's gonna be amazing isn't that great when you picture something in your mind and then you figure out a way to make that happen. That's one of the most satisfying things about woodworking to me is I'll picture what is it to, that I want to experience. Mm -hmm. And then I go, okay, then what would it look like? Right. And then based on what would it look like, how would I make that happen? Break yeah. it down. What would the joints look like? What would the proportions be? And what order would I cut them in? And what wood would I use? Yeah. And what joints would I use? And that uh, that is so exciting it is to me too it's problem solving sort of it is it's it's, it's like solving. two parts of your brain at the same time the creative part and the analytical part and there are very few things i think that kind of exercise both of them i agree it's kind of a spatial intelligence right yeah. to, to understand how things work in space and then the logic of putting things together it's really i love to woodwork i am not patient i think if i had the right tools i would be more patient yeah. but i get very impatient and i go oh, i just slap it together let's just get it done because i don't have you know i don't have I have a drill and a skill saw and a jigsaw and that's about it so. you can get a lot done with that <laughs> you, you sure can get can. a lot done with that so now with the woodworking coming back you had woodworking when you were younger uh i took classes in high school okay. and i fell in love with it the first day just the smell of the sawdust and everything and so i just kept taking woodworking classes uh in high school so i guess i had a total of three of them and then never did it again until I got sober and had free time and energy and just turned my garage, this would have been in 03, 04, turned uh, my garage into a wood shop and just kept upgrading tools. Right. Because I was fortunate enough to be working in TV then so I right. could afford to upgrade tools and stuff like that. Um, and just devoured whatever information I could find uh, on TV and in magazines about how to do stuff and right. just kept getting better and better at it. And then when my marriage was kind of um, growing apart, I just kind of started to withdraw into myself and I lost interest in a lot of my things. I lost interest in playing guitar and woodworking. And um, so I'm just now getting getting back into it. Now, do you feel like that was an indicator that you were depressed, that you were losing interest yeah. in those? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I was just kind of shutting shutting down because I didn't want to um, split up. And I 
didn't want to deal with all of the fears of what you know we were together 28 years oh my god that's yeah. a long time yeah i mean we I were fucking kids when we met we were 24 wow and just the thought of i'd never lived alone ever wow always had roommates and I didn't know, I didn't know if I'd be able to financially survive on my own. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, you know, if I would, I, I didn't know anything. How scary. I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified. I would have been scared too. That that makes sense. Yeah. To, to have never lived alone yeah. would be really scary to be faced with how do, how do I do this by yes. myself? Yeah. Wow. It was, it was terrifying. And uh-huh. like many things in life. I got through it, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Right. And there were many, uh, many things have happened since then that are great that I couldn't have predicted, and we get along great, and I see her a couple of times a week because we still share a dog, and we still care about each other. That's and great. And I couldn't picture any of those things in that moment. Right. That would be hard to picture, I would it imagine. It was hard, you know? So what what do you think has been the biggest gift you've received from doing your podcast? I think a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, but they've also, that community of listenership and guests have helped me through the most difficult time. When I went through making... Um, dealing with the reality of what I experienced as a child mm-hmm. from the things that my mom did mm-hmm. to me. Um, I had buried it for years. And my then wife would always say to me, you think that you've dealt with how your mom treated you and touched you and looked at you, mm-hmm. but you haven't. Right. And that used to piss me off. Right. And she was right. She was right, and it finally, just like lava came up. Um, I don't know, was it six years ago, twenty twelve? And the sense of community, because I I started talking about it on the podcast, and um, the moms in particular just circled the wagons, you know, right. through emails or meeting me for lunch. Or just being a shoulder to cry on because, you know, I was like in that moment, I was like that that seven or eight-year-old boy yeah. was stepping out of the shadows oh, yeah. and I wanted a mommy. Mm-hmm. And, and this is so, yeah, there was this moment that this this mom sent me an email and she said, because I had gotten a bunch of emails from moms that said, I was going back and forth of, am I making too big of a deal? Right. These things that she did. And this, these moms were writing in saying, I'm a mom. Fuck no, you are not making too big of a deal. Right. That is sick, right. what she did. Right. And this one mom wrote in and said, I want to kick your mom in the cunt. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to hurt my mom. I still have love for my mom. Yeah, yeah. I know she's a sick person, but that felt so good. That fierceness yes. felt so good. And this was just a listener yeah. who I'd never met in person. Right. And that 
that's one of the things that I've gotten from it. So it's a real two-way street. And, yeah. you know, it's amazing to have someone stand up for you, even in that indirect way. Yeah. To have someone stand up for you because my dad's the least confrontational person walking this planet. He never stood up for me with my mom. And no one really ever has. Uh, but I remember Bert one time going, fuck her, she's not coming back in this life. And I went, finally, yes. finally, somebody sees it and says that. Like, I can yes. say that, but then I feel bad. Right. I'm the daughter. I'm the one that's supposed to be, you know, forgiving and all this stuff. But when someone else observes and goes, oh, that's fucking wrong, then you just feel so cared for and validated validated yeah because there's a part of your brain i think that wants that to be minimalized wants it to be less so that you don't have to reject your mom in a certain way yeah i still love my mom too and i hope to god she's happy with her life but i don't have a relationship with her because i can't i can't do it and maintain my own health and well-being so but there is a part of you that wishes somebody could just, I wish she could understand how I feel. And it, that wish will never come true. Yeah. Not ever. But so for someone else to understand it, it comes true a little bit. It, it's an amazing feeling. It is, right? Yeah. Where you just go, oh, thank you. I'm not crazy. I'm not I'm bad. Not crazy. I'm not bad. That's right. Because I just would tell myself, you're so selfish. You're Mm. so bad. Me too. You know, you're a terrible son. Me too. Why can't you figure this out? Right. Bert, even before this breaking point with my mom, would say, there's got to be a way you can fix it. And I would, all the healthy part of me would go, nope, I have tried everything. But that little piece inside goes, Mm -hmm. but have you really tried everything? And you know, when stuff like that happens, when you were saying that about, you started talking about this on the podcast. Uh, it's amazing as an adult to feel your child mm-hmm. when they're hurt, right? Yeah. Because when we're children, or at least when I was a child, I, I didn't feel that stuff. I put it neatly aside. That's where numbness pays off. Yeah. You just get from A to B. I'm just going to play with my cat and I'm going to act like that didn't happen. Or I'm just going to go to my dad's and I'm going to eat a bunch of sugar and we'll call it even. Or I'm going to, you know, whatever your coping mechanism as a child. But to have a moment, I was reading a book about um, abuse and I'd never used that word with myself. I never thought of myself as being abused. No one hit me. I mean, I got a spanking, but so did everybody else in the 70s. But what happened was abusive, right? So I remember reading this book it's called Strong at the Broken Places, and it was, it was describing parts of my life and saying this was abuse. Like I was like, you just basically watched my childhood and wrote that chapter? Right. And at the end of it, it says abuse, and I don't like that. I don't want to associate with that word. Yeah. But the little girl in me showed up and was upset. I was crying. I was crying like every three pages in this book. I felt like a child. I felt out of control. I felt dismantled. I felt... Untethered. Uncomfortable. Yeah. But really, I was like, this is how I felt 
when I was a child and, and I just put it on a shelf because I couldn't deal with it. I didn't have a safe place for it. Yeah. I know exactly the feeling you're talking about. Yeah. It's so healing, that feeling. If it you is, can but get it's so it. hard to get to that place. It because is. Because every fiber of our being wants to maintain that relationship and wants to come up with a reason why we should still have that relationship. Yeah. And it, it's it's hard. It's a, the most painful thing I think that I that I ever had to do. And I still feel there's a part of me that still feels like a bad son, mm-hmm. like I'm exaggerating. Um, if I ever use the word uh, incest, uh, there there is a part of me that rolls its eyes and is like, oh, here we go again. You know, <laughs> pl- get out the world's tiniest violin. <laughs> And but it's it's not it's not an exaggeration, you know, it's it's real. And it's hard to it's hard to accept that. Yeah, Uh, it was for me anyway. It's hard to. You know. I was I went home for my dad's uh, birthday, went home in July and there's a woman that was my dad's age. She has kids my age. And when we were small children, we uh, hung out with their family a lot. She was really good friends with my mom. She went to high school with my mom. So she and her husband and my mom and dad and the four of us kids hung out a lot. She's been listening to my podcast. Mm -hmm. And she listened to the episode about my mom. And I didn't really think anybody in Bowden, Georgia listened to my podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she said, I listened to your podcast about your mother. I said, you did? Oh my gosh. Well, well, tell me what you thought. And she said, you were 100% accurate. And I almost started crying. Because I went, I just don't ever believe that I'm 100% accurate. I definitely believe I'm making up a lot of this shit. But for her to say that, she said, that is my memory of your mom. Exactly. I was like, that is the biggest gift you could, I said to her, that is the biggest gift you could have ever given me because I doubt myself constantly with those stories. And and I go, well, if I'm telling the same story the same way every time, it's probably not a lie. But my mom told me I was a liar my whole life, so I'm definitely probably lying. <laughs> and, and one right. of the things with people who are narcissists is they project the things that they dislike about themselves onto other people. They right. will call the very thing that they subconsciously know they are. At least that's my belief. Oh, I believe I that. I mean, like you look at our, our president. Everything yes. that he calls <laughs> other people are things that, that is he him. is. Yeah. You know? and, and it's probably not limited to narcissists. You know, I'm, I'm sure I have uh, traits of narcissism in me, and I'm sure I've projected things that I don't like about myself onto, onto other people. But with those parents... You know, the very thing that we struggle thinking, oh, you know, I am pure this or I'm pure that. Uh, we look at the parent as we're in therapy and, the you know, the therapist will say, wow, your parent is, you know, quite a martyr, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Quite, and that was something that my mom would call me all the time. You know, I'd say I'm you're a martyr, martyr. Mm-hmm. you're a selfish, rotten bastard, oh, or, you know, this or that and then there would be lavishing of praise you right. know later and it was just a where the fuck is the truth what yeah. what am i yeah it was a mind fuck wasn't it a mind fuck yeah my mom was that way too she would she used to tell me things that didn't even make logical sense like she would say you are so fat 
I weigh 100 pounds. And I go, there's, I, there's no, I'm not even possibly fat. But I, inside, I would go, I'm definitely a disgusting piece of shit. <laughs> you know, you may, I may not be fat, but I'm aligning with what you're saying. Because you're my mom. Aren't you supposed to be right. like out for all goodness and tell me the truth? And, you know, she would say stuff like that. And then I'm a liar. And I'd be like, actually, you just lied about four things. And I don't lie ever. But maybe I am lying. Mm-hmm. It's that little nugget of like disbelief or something where they get you just off yes and it's it's the fear that i'm bad but i just can't see it that's i have that fear too yes i have is that oh yeah you don't think you're bad but you are yes and other people see it yes i felt that way too very much yeah it's a crazy way to grow up, Paul, isn't it? I still feel that way sometimes. I do too. I've yes. so, uh, constantly. If we have a misunderstanding, like within our friends, about like scheduling dinner, I definitely think it is my fault, and I probably lied. <laughs> and I'll go back and go through the emails and go, wait, oh no, 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 okay, here it is in writing. I'm right. But unless I find it, like proof of it, it's definitely my fault, and I definitely lied. Well, I don't lie to anybody for anything ever. But I grew up with someone who lied constantly so and told me i lied constantly so then i just went well maybe i'm lying but that woman at my dad's friend told me that and it i just thought i should really take that in in a deep way and Mm -hmm. stop doubting myself because she had no reason to tell me that there was no agenda for her at all to say that to me that was a gift from god in my opinion is that she just went tap 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 just so you know, you're doing okay. This is right. Us oh, crazy path, this path. So, um, do you have siblings? Uh, I have a brother, and there was a cousin who was raised with us. Okay. And how do they feel about your mom? Uh, since this is a public thing, okay. um, I will say that uh, uh, I, I don't want to speak for my brother. No problem. But my brother validates my experiences. Totally. Understand. Yes. Um, I wonder, I always wonder how it is for someone with a sibling yes. that has a parent, what their different opinions, and I don't mean mm-hmm. to ask you to talk about it if you're not comfortable, but I'm curious about that to wonder if I had a sibling, what would their perspective be? Because yes. everyone's perspective is different, yes. even if you have the same experience. You know, right. if you're both slapped in the face, your perspective may be totally different on that Right. slap. I'm always curious to know what that's like. Um, it it's very validating to have somebody um, validate your experience, right? And not say, "Oh, you're a liar" or "You're an exaggerator," because that happens very often in a family. It does it, Be- yeah, because that other sibling may have also experienced. This is not the case with my brother, but uh, another sibling might have experienced a similar abuse that they still want to compartmentalize and minimize so that they can survive. Right. And they, you're asking them to open that door where the monster is living. Right. And th- it is easier for them to say, you know, you, there is no monster. Yeah. You're a terrible daughter. Um, uh, right. why are you doing this to mom? Um, right. I don't want to have anything to do with you. That would be so hard. It's brutal. It's brutal. I know people whose whole families have turned on them um, because they're speaking the truth about what's what's going on. Yeah. And then sometimes one by one, 
the other siblings will come over to their side but even with like that first sibling that will say you know this is it, not okay this, this is not okay right. and you know such and such did happen to me right it's uh i think it's it's far easier to for people to deny and continue on the path of least resistance mm -hmm. than to face the music because that's so scary Especially as a family dynamic, I guess it would be really scary because families tend to be pretty fragile anyway, I find. Really fragile. And it's like you assume your roles and all of a sudden you're changing the play. <laughs> right? And people are upset when they don't know their lines. I guess so. I never thought about it. But yeah, I guess you're right. You change because when you change yourself, you force everyone in your life yeah. to change at least how they relate to you, yeah. if not who they are. Um they have to change how they relate. Yeah, I, I heard a therapist one one time describe it as like a, a mobile that's over a, a child's crib. Yeah. That when you change the weight, you take part of it away, the whole thing is going to shift. Interesting. And so other things will need to shift back for it to... Balance. For it to balance. Interesting. Um, so what has been the most helpful thing for you in this process? Has it been the groups? Has, the groups. It's been the groups. The groups, the, the unconditional love. Right. Uh, the connection. I, yeah, felt platonically being able to be myself, sharing my darkest uh, moments, darkest secrets, um, navigating the not knowing what's true and, and, and what isn't, and just having people that I can fall apart uh, right. in front of. And, and to then also be there for, for them. Right. Um, and therapy has been great, but the support groups have really been. And, and that was the support groups were the template for the podcast is just the real oh, okay. raw vulnerable conversations that I, that I had there. I thought, well, why can't we do this about stuff more than just addictions? And publicly, really. And publicly. Because publicly, I mean, that's how you affect change, right? Is to make it, to make it less, um, taboo yeah and the power of a story uh, like i don't ever remember something if i read it in an academic textbook but no. when i hear somebody share about their life i may remember that for the rest of my life that's very true storytelling is really powerful yeah. and sharing sharing your feelings and your experiences um even if it's not in story form just to state facts you know fact my mom did this fact my mom did that right is really helpful i think for people i know a lot of people that write into me say um they gain courage from hearing stories from people mm -hmm. on my podcast they they then are brave enough to say okay i can maybe make a change or a lot of people that listen to my podcast are men saying now i understand my wife better yeah. and now i can listen to her differently and i think oh my god instead of trying to fix her yes or not understanding her and you know the dynamic of a personal relationship face to face is so different than being a, a voyeur so to speak and mm -hmm. listening to these conversations because if you're in a relationship having a conversation is complicated very complicated right because yeah. you have your own agenda whether you want to or not it's right. there consciously or not you have an agenda it's, you're li listening subjectively you are and you're 
processing through the filter of this relationship that yes. you've had with this person. Whereas when you tune into your podcast, you just get to learn. Yes. You just get to like soak it up like a sponge. You don't have to filter it through your fears. That's right. Or your judgment even. Yeah. You just get to listen and accept. What a gift you've given the world. Ooh, you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> well, welcome to the party. You made me uncomfortable too. <laughs> but it is a really, it is a gift. That's a gift to have a forum for people to feel safe enough to say, I feel that way too. That's a real gift. Mm. All right. That's enough. <laughs> but it is. It is. It's kind of beautiful. Um, well, thanks for coming. Thanks I love chatting here. with you. I love chatting with you, you too. i got to get you over to the, to the wood shop when I get my arm out of a sling. I would and, love uh, that. Yeah. I think I love, love to it. work. And yeah. thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, it's a great I episode. I learned so much from that conversation with you about myself. Yeah. Um, especially the aha moment I had where you, with you and me. And I was like, wow. I came home and like cried and cried and cried after that podcast. That's yes. another thing I think people should know, too is the crying never stops. So you may as well just get used to it, right? Yes. You're not gonna cry it out and be done. Right. In my experience, that really doesn't happen. Right. It, the crying comes and goes for your whole life. Yeah, your soul needs to take a shit sometimes. <laughs> you know? Your soul does need to take a shit. <laughs> Our 14 year old is saying to me lately, I don't wanna watch that movie because it's gonna make me cry. And I go, then that's the movie we're gonna watch. Yeah. And you're going to cry because it's part of being a human And it's cleansing. Being. It's yes, cleansing. it's cathartic. Yeah. It's healthy, it's healing. It's so positive. Yeah, not to be confused with, I'm going to go hang out with that relative that berates me and makes me cry. No, exactly. That's, no, <laughs> no, no, no. But to be okay with it when it comes. Yeah. To be okay to say, I'm uncomfortable with your compliment. Or yeah. I just watched Terms of Endearment for the 80th time and cried my head off again. It's That's such okay. a good movie. Amazing movie. They don't make them like that anymore. They do don't. They? James L. Brooks, genius. You know all who the... was supposed to play Jack Nicholson? Who? That role? Uh, Burt Reynolds. And he turned it down. What a dummy. Wow. One of the greatest I think he, characters. I think he also turned down a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He did. Yeah. Good for Jack Nicholson, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Divine intervention. Divine intervention. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for all yes. that you do for everybody. Right back at you. And uh, please invite me to the woodworking shop. I would love that. I will. I will. All right. Take care of your elbow. Thanks. Well, I got a brand new pair of roller skates.